Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. And then I'm in Phoenix right now. I, I think you knew that, but... Uh, yeah, so um, you're on uh, two hours from me. Yep, yeah. Yeah, how are things going for you out east uh, at Two Rivers Treads? Good, good. Have, have you heard of our little store before? Yeah, you know, you know what? Back in yeah. the early days of Ultra with Golden. And stuff. Yeah, no doubt. You know, it's uh, it's funny because I feel like I know you a lot better than I probably should without having met you. <laughs> and I think so, a lot of that is to do with kind of both, we both kind of found those uh, those like approaches and to running from like natural footwear as well as kind of some similar training methodologies and then a, a nutrition approach too. So we're kind of two peas in a pod with that. And, you know, I actually remember uh, when I first started with ultra, I, I've been working with them in some shape or form since like the end of 2013. And okay. Uh, you know, your name and two of his treads would come up a lot in those early days uh, because it was just, it wasn't super common to have a store that was like all in on natural footwear. Usually it was, that was kind of an uphill battle to fight, few years ago so it still is as you yeah know. No, no doubt yeah Similar, you, know, you guys have you know i've listened to probably every one of your shows i mean you'd think you know even the, the nutrition stuff is like why is it such an uphill battle just to yeah open their minds it's really weird but mm-hmm. it is, you know? yeah it seems it seems like it's and i guess it makes a little bit of sense like when people have been doing the same thing for years and years and years yeah. it just gets harder and harder to to convince them that what they were doing was was not necessarily in their best interest, whether that be their their footwear or their nutrition. And I think we can do some deep dives in kind of both those topics. It's the biggest battle kind of years ago, and it's still to some degree a, a battle, as you know, is like this idea of like putting a post in a shoe and uh, like not expecting that person's foot muscle to get even weaker over time. And it's like the classic example of a Band-Aid yeah, and when you really look at a lot of this, a lot of the the evidence of like what is detrimental in terms of potential injury, mm-hmm. to put someone in a post if they don't need it is is a pretty big disservice. Yeah, decommissioning the foot, mm-hmm. and then yeah. even you know we could talk about it on the show. You know, even the studies. You know, Jay DeSherry. So when you post up, you know, the rear part of a shoe, thinking it's going to affect pronation, it actually doesn't because most pronation happens when your heels off off the ground. Mm-hmm. On the toe off. So all that crap they put in the back of the shoe that looks all fancy isn't even doing anything uh-huh yeah you know it was what how it was explained to me by golden was that like if you have someone who's over pronating and it's it's more or less kind of where their gait is and then you put them in a in a, a structured shoe their foot over pronates almost have as much yeah as it would exactly. otherwise just because it, it's just doing it inside the shoe so the One shoe millimeter yeah. One millimeter difference. And that's what they <laughs> won't do these studies again. That was actually one of the studies that Casey Kerrigan did where they actually put markers on the navicular bone, you know, like these. So this is like not a fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. 
probably worse than muscle biopsies. You know, you've had those things. Uh, oh man. Yeah. You know, I had a muscle. I've, I, the last time I had one of those was back in 2014. And I remember I went running like the next couple of days and yeah. it was like, it just felt like knives were stabbing you in the, where it's that, like, it's like was. that thing where you, you know, you have to, you know, you get the core out there. Nasty. I yeah. see Sean on there up in the, I'm going to shut my door here. So my dog doesn't. Cool. How's it going, Sean? Today, I just broke away from work. It's snowing. It's going good. Hey, Zach, can you hear a little like chiming coming in from my side? The audio is that coming up? Show up, not show up. On uh, your you're coming in pretty good. Mark, yours is still kind of coming in and out every once in a while. Is uh is your microphone? It's plugged into the USB port. Yes. Do you hear? Okay. Are you hearing a little chiming on mine? Are you hearing a little little computer yeah, chime? This sounds, this sounds good, Sean. Yeah, I haven't heard anything but your voice from your side, Sean. Okay, because I'm getting notifications from my social media keeps keeping up when I'm hearing it. I don't, I don't know how to turn it off, so I don't know it. But it's like I put on, I put some posts on Instagram, and a lot of people are reacting to it. So. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. Anyway. <laughs> It's a crazy world. So a lot of juicy stuff these days you can put up with all this bullshit. Yeah, that's it's true. It's true. Lancet thing, you know. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's that's that's. I don't know if you saw it. I took way too long to write the damn thing, but I had to put all the attach like all the rebuttals onto one sheet. You know, my own take as a doc about that. But we can talk about that. You know, without complete disrespect, but (laughs) call it what it is. Yeah, it's a cool. donut. It's a prescription for donuts is basically what it is. I mean, it's it ridiculous. Is. It is. Hey, um, link that out, you know, in the show notes too. People can read it. Yeah, sure. yeah. Well, well, we're rolling, guys. So um, I think we can introduce Mark to our listeners. And, you know, Mark, uh, we've been uh, angling to get you on for a while. And uh, yeah, I think we, we reached out or you reached out at the end or mid to – end of last year and, and we're now finally getting around to having you on here and we're, we're excited uh you have a book called run for your life you own a running store in west virginia called two rivers treads and uh you also help out a lot with uh, the air force running if i'm not mistaken right correct uh, and then to kind of give you a little bit of uh recognition to our listeners Mark has has been on a is it a thirty year journey where you've run a sub three hour marathon for thirty consecutive years? Thirty consecutive, and I and I went three oh two and three oh four last year, so I'm I'm gonna let that one end at thirty. Boston <laughs> last year was pretty miserable, and I gave it a go there and missed by a few minutes. Oh yeah, you were a victim to the weather. You probably would have been under yeah. three. It'd have been nice out. But I'm happy to. I'll show up again this year at, at Boston and keep at it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the best scenario probably would be after finally missing a year of sub three hour would be to love it enough to go back and still get another sub three hour. Yeah, and then there's no, you know, you guys are all busy. It's, it's tough fitting real training into your life when you've got like three jobs, two kids and doing all, and running is my recovery now, Zach and Sean, you know, so that it just makes the rest of my day work, you know, like going to the gym, you know, it's, everything works to go out with no pressure. Oh, today it's snow and I'll sneak out later today and this will be a blast. My dog will love it. She'll be running around burning her nose and, and it'll be a good time. Yeah, that's one, that's one of the reasons I compete in a sport that takes about two minutes to compete so I don't have to spend <laughs> Lift. three hours running yeah. or something like that. So, Mark, um, I should say uh, Colonel Kukazella. Lieutenant Colonel, yeah, uh, Colonel. fellow Air Force. Yeah, yeah that's what I was when I got out of the Air Force, Lieutenant Colonel. But it's, you know, you know I, 
I've kind of followed, you know, remotely some of the stuff that's been going on. I've been very impressed, you know, with your, um, you know, the, the accomplishments you're doing, you know, as a physician, as an Air Force guy, you know, I know what that's about. Um, and then all the running success you've had. But more importantly, the success you've had working with a hospital to get them to adopt a, a, a low-carb strategy, which, is, which is, could not have been an easy, uh, based on my experience, I can tell you, it's, it's probably not, a, it was probably an uphill battle. And I like to kind of hear a little bit about that and then some of the stuff you've been you've been doing you know just with your patients and 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 I know Zach wants to talk about running too but let's talk about any of that stuff yeah so thanks for bringing that up Sean and I mean no kidding I think you know we all do stuff in our lives that we just feel like we want a, a hard war and I think the running stuff is just for fun and yucks I mean that's that's my free time but you know accomplishing what we did in our small hospital needs to go bigger and and that was a win but it was hard fought you know, so a little of my backstory. So I was uh, like, you know, Zach, you know, <laughs> crazy runner guy in the Air Force brought me on about six years ago to help him. The mile and a half, six laps of the track, uh, General Schwartz came on about seven years ago, tightened the screws on the test, and he made the run 60% of the test. And if you failed the run, you failed the test, which, you know, for a lot of career folks and early, you know, early folks, you know, that was a big deal because this is their life. This is their paycheck. and um, yeah, you lose your job if you fail. So, you know, I came on to that with the standard assumption, well, let's try to teach people how to run more, run better. But when I started to look at the data, one of the things I noticed early was the failure rates and the BMI, body mass index, correlated pretty directly. So the bigger you were, um, the worse odds you had at passing the test. And instead of going right with my standard gut assumption, well, these guys just need to eat less and exercise more, I came across just by chance, I was just Googling stuff about, I was like, well, I think I know about nutrition. I've been telling people this my whole life, 3,500 calories is a pound, so you got to get in this deficit. And I never actually saw that work as a doc. <laughs> but, you know, we told it to people plenty of times, you know, and you get deployed, right? People actually gain weight on deployment because they're eating the MREs and, and they're exercising more just by their own lifestyle than when they're back home stationed. You know, they're they're marching around all day doing stuff. And I came across Gary Taubes' first article. It was called Maybe It's All Been, a, not his first, but the first one that really went big, you know, Maybe It's All Been a Big Fat Lie, the New York Times article really advocating for Atkins, showing how the food pyramid and all that stuff was upside down. And I looked at my own lifestyle right, right then and looked at my own labs. And uh, my fasting glucose was above 100 at that time. Trigs were high, HDL was low, and I was waking up at two in the morning every morning to have another <laughs> salad bowl of cereal. So I was like, my family's loaded with heart disease, you know, diabetes, all the bad stuff. And it was like, whoa, I got this damn thing. You know, this makes sense. So that was my last bowl of cereal. So I did my own little experiment for about a month, you know, just went back on the bacon and eggs and certainly kept vegetables in there. I know that's an area now of discussion, but I just got rid of all the standard stuff, all the sugar, all the grains, all the starches, and went on, you know, what Finney and Volek would call a well-formulated low-carb diet. My energy came back. My running just was just, I had, I mean, I didn't need to gel up, goo up. I got my life back. All my labs reversed. And then I was, I was spending a good part of that six months traveling to Air Force bases, giving seminars, you know, trying to teach them the principles of running, you know, slow down, let's teach you form, a little bit about footwear. And I'd always ask the question, you know, in an audience, maybe 100 people, Sean, you know, like they'd be sitting in the bleachers at the base gym. 
has anyone in this audience lost 50 pounds or plus for a year, kept it off? You know, just kept it off, not lost 50 and regained 100. And occasionally there'd be a hand, usually every time I do this, there'd be one or two hands would go up. This is six years ago. And I'd ask them what they did. And across the board, it was, oh, I got rid of all the sugar. I got rid of all the bread. I'm doing paleo. That no one knew what the word like low carb was then. I did Atkins. And that got me convinced that there was something real about this. And then I start. I came back to West Virginia University and, you know, I approached my whole uh, organization to advocate that we need for diabetics in the hospital a low carb option for meals. You know, the lowest option for a meal for anyone was 60 grams carb. That was a diabetic meal with 15 gram snack. And they allowed me to do it if I was the doc on service. So that was kind of nice. You know, that I think I just gave a convincing enough. There was so much science back then. I gave a presentation, you know, PowerPoint, all the insulin resistance stuff. And they said, okay, you can do that. And we started to do 10 gram carb per meal options with no sliding scale insulin. So for folks out there, sliding scale, as Sean knows, is that's what every resident Know, junior house officer writes for a diabetic patient. You know, if their sugar's 200, give them two units. You know, if they're gonna, and it's just this automatic thing. So we didn't do that, and we did 10 gram carb per meal. And Sean, you would love this one. So that, that we call them dot phrases in the electronic record. So if I type in dot low carb, it says 10 gram carb, double eggs, double meat, extra salad. So they wouldn't get like some little kind of serving of rabbit food and be hungry and sneak out. And go, you know, and go, go to the vending machine. So they were, they couldn't even eat all this. You know, it'd be like four eggs for breakfast. You know, they get double ribeyes if they had that on the, on the, on the menu. And immediately you'd see the patients would see their blood glucose is stabilized and we could reduce insulin. So we started doing that one at a time. And then residents started doing it. Other faculty started doing it. And we created what's called a clinical pathway. You know, so if we're going to do this option, you know, nursing staff's going to teach this way. The nutritionists are going to come in and teach this way. The pharmacy's going to come in and not teach them sliding scale. So it was kind of a collaborative effort. Um, certainly got a lot of resistance along the way from standard guidelines when ultimately my dean said, you guys can do this. Because nurses, for example, so there was a resistance from the leadership of nursing, not the nurses in the trenches taking care of patients. They were pushing it forward. But if you're a nurse, you are kind of, you have to follow the guidelines. You know, doctors, for better or worse, we can, we have a license to kill, right, Sean? We can do whatever the hell we want, but a nurse has to follow their practice guidelines or else they're outliers. So a couple of the nurses were trying to shut this down. And then our dean said, no, it's all cool. You guys can do it. And then that open the doors. And we actually, uh, by the time this goes up, the paper might be in press. So we just published a paper on our clinical pathway. It's going to be in the Journal of Diabetes Management showing how to do this right. So if you're another hospital and you want to do this, a low-carb pathway for your diabetics as an option, then cool. We also got rid of all the sugar drinks in my hospital, and that took a little bit of work, and I'm pretty happy. We, a hospital should not serve sugar-sweetened beverages. Like smoking, probably worse. But that's kind of a little background on that. We wanted to go bigger into more hospitals. Hey, Mark, one one follow up with what you said too, because I know one of the more recent kind of discussions that I'll see online is this topic of we have someone who's got type two diet 
diabetes and they follow a low carb diet and their, their blood sugar normalizes. And one side says, great, we cured you. The other side says, no, you didn't cure anything. It's just laying dormant. And if you reintroduce the carbohydrates, it's just exactly. going to flare back up. Therefore, you're just putting a Band-Aid on it. What are your thoughts about that? Is that kind of what you've yeah. seen? What's your view? So, yeah, so that's a great question. So you, whether the term is reversal or remission, so I'm a, my high A1C was 6.3 looking the same as I do now, you know, lean marathoner. So 6.3 is pre-diabetic, almost diabetic. So with my low carbohydrate diet, my last A1C was 5.2. So my pre-diabetes diabetes is now in remission. So as long as I keep living the way I do, it should stay in remission. If I go back to, I think Zach, I was, you know, probably like if you look at how the Kenyans eat, as many bowls of cereal and skim milk as I had in pasta and pizza, I was probably eating 600 to 900 grams of carbs a day. So if I went back to that, I'd be diabetic in a day. You know, I have a glucometer, and if I even have like a cup of raisins, my sugar will be 160 or 170. You know, certainly yeah. a super high glycemic fruit. So, yes, yeah. you have to keep it in remission with what puts it into remission. So if a low-carb diet puts it in remission – now the exercise can help. I think if you get rid of all the liver fat, get rid of a, you know lose 50 pounds in your belly, you can trickle in. It's just like the original you know Atkins induction, ongoing weight loss. You know then you'd have preparation for maintenance. You're going to be able to trickle some more back in once you've rid your body of that insulin resistance. But you're always going to be susceptible to it genetically. So you're going to see that threshold where that is for you. Yeah. And that's kind of always been my thought too, is like, if you do find yourself in a situation where a specific nutrition program works really well and another one is like causing disease, then uh, like, you know, just you, you shouldn't be eating the one that causes the disease. Yeah, you know? and, and that's, exactly. That's, it's not type two diabetes specific. That's the case for anything. Like, you know, you see that all the time, certain groups of people are more Auto susceptible immune. to different diseases. Whatever and they, it is. Yeah. 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 So um, it, it seems like it's kind of just a, uh, you know, we're, kind of a nitpicky debate at, at any rate, if it's like, if it's working, it's working. Um, Sean, if you want to jump into, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. You know, I've always got stuff to add, you know, it's kind of fun. <laughs> hey, you know, Mark, I was just, just kind of, you know, commiserating with you on the, uh, you know, with post-surgical patients, you know, one of the goals to, inf to prevent infections or other complications was to keep the blood glucose you know, below a certain level. And certainly, you know, the paradigm that I, I was exposed to and forced to utilize was basically, you know, often, you know, these even diabetics are given a, uh, you know, a replacement fluid sometimes causes, has dextrose in it, you know, like D5 half normal saline or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then they're hit with the, the, the sliding scale, just like you're talking about. And it's like, you know, why don't we just stop giving them so much glucose, but that, that just doesn't compute. And yeah, it doesn't compute. Getting it to, work in in your hospital and they, and they say west virginia is backwards where you guys are you know we're, you guys forward, are, man. we're leading the chart way out there man that's yeah, good to see revolution but, yeah but i mean it's uh, hopefully it'll catch on more and more um you know it's it's not surprising to me that the, the nurses were some of the biggest uh, roadblocks and and like you said they they're definitely you know, like I said, they have to toe the line and it's, it's, it's really a fight to do that. And I'm glad you were able to come that and hopefully some other hospitals will, 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 you know, but you know, again, at the end of the day, it's results and, and results yeah. are, are, you know, we talk about evidence-based medicine and there's some really 
questions about where our evidence comes from. Unfortunately, there's a lot of influence that goes into that. And I know there's a lot of good people in there, but unfortunately, that's the way it is. And, you know, yeah, I think we have to start on the ground, Sean, were the ones that actually moved it through. We've had, you know, half a dozen nurses lose 50, 100, 150 pounds, and we're a 24 bed hospital. But they were the ones who were my best allies to bring it up to their administ administration. And so you got to have it's bottom up, you know, as Tim Noak says, it's the wisdom of the people versus the power of the anointed. If you get enough wisdom of the people, you can break down those barriers. Yeah, I think that's, and that's what's slowly happening. I'm seeing it and hopefully it'll continue. You know, it's, uh, you know, I, I like to see, we start looking at results-based medicine and, and, you know, I, again, when we look at results and we, 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 we decide that our results are whatever, some guideline says results should be, you know, based on, you know, AHA recommendations or, you know, about cholesterol levels or, or blood glucose control. We, I mean, we should really involve patients in what results do they actually want? You know, what are you, what results are you looking for? And then, and then sort of make our paradigm say, let's make the results of something that patients care about. And I think that yes. would be a better solution for sure. Amen. You've hit like such a, I wouldn't say, I mean, I try not to get angry, but it is something that really angers me in the medical world. We treat the charts, you know, with these electronic medical records, you know, the quality people, they treat the charts. And, you know, quality measures for diabetes is blood pressure control, sugar control, you know, are you on a statin, are you taking an aspirin, are you on, it's all this chart stuff, but it has nothing to do with what the patient's wishes are in shared decision making. So as you know, I mean, we could share dozens of articles. The more medications you give to meet these standards that'll make the EMR, the electronic medical record, all go green like you're doing a good job, actually are highly associated with early mortality. So we, we'll kill the patients and they'll be miserable. So yeah, it's, it, we need to bring in patient focus and patient center into how like me or you as a physician is graded. And I just kind of go about my job. If, if some quality person wants to come after me and take my license one day, then so be it. I'll go, okay. I'll go work full time in my store, Zach, selling running shoes. <laughs> so I got a backup plan. Uh, so, so, yeah, so Mark, when, when you have a patient with type 2 diabetes, uh, like, do you have a specific protocol of like, I'm going to focus on nutrition and then exercise or a combination of both or exercise then nutrition? Is there like a holistic type of philosophy you have? Yeah, yeah. so my clinic actually, and, and WVU, you know, progressive after we got this hospital protocol through and people, I mean, we had community meetings, you know, a few hundred people showing up. There was this demand for low carb in my community. They opened up a center, West Virginia Diabetes and Metabolic Health. And I was given, I was given the title of director of low carb nutrition at a university clinic. But in that, in that clinic, what we do is we focus on, you know, what we call, and others have called the four pillars, sleep, stress, movement, and food. You know, and, you know, I think community and purpose fits in there, too. So, you know, I would guess, I mean, the literature affirms this, about 70 to 80% of type 2 diabetics and severe insulin-resistant folks have sleep apnea. If they don't get their sleep apnea addressed or, you know, they've got some huge family socioeconomic stress, it's going to be very hard for them to succeed in any kind of movement or nutrition strategy. So we kind of try to meet them. My first visit is an hour. And so you kind of see where, you know, where are they in this path of willingness to change? What's the first thing they can do? Some people want all in. They're like, just give me the 20 gram carb a day list and I'm all in. But that's actually a rarity you know, for easy success because people are so addicted to 
foods and they have sleep apnea and you know they've got you know sean you'd be proud our orthopedic clinic is the biggest refer over because they see and they understand the outcomes of all their hip and knee replacements are directly related to what the body mass index is so you know we're working hand in hand with the orthopedic clinic to try to help these folks and the inflammation too you know when they're eating all the high carb foods and the vegetable oils all these inflammatory markers the pain sometimes, I mean, we want to avoid these surgeries in people. But yeah, we try to, we address all of it. And then we kind of look at each person and see, you know, what's the lowest hanging fruit and go with that and try to address all of those spheres, you know, get them to figure out how to move a little bit more and doing something fun. You know, let's look at, you know, I go through a full like week's food history, like where are you shopping? What are you buying? What are you snacking? Oh, I forgot about this snack. Most people have no idea what they eat. And it, we bring joy to it, you know, so we're not like restricting foods. What we're doing is we're allowing them to eat the stuff that you guys eat. Usually, I'm in West Virginia. When I tell my patients, how do you, what do you think about like if I said it's cool to eat bacon and eggs? And you see like, it's like their eyes light up. Oh, oh my gosh, that's what my grandparents ate. And how did they do? Well, they were fine, right? They worked on the farm till they were about 90, you know? So yeah, it's, it's fine, you know, go ahead and have your bacon and eggs, you know, this is fine. So we're actually bringing back the foods that traditionally they were restricted because of dietary guidelines and advice that wasn't working for them because they wouldn't be in my office if they didn't have diabetes and obesity. So whatever they're doing is not working. So we just kind of, I open, I, I used Tim Noakes' Real Meal Revolution, green, uh, orange, red list. It's so perfect. You know, we'll go circle things that they like on the green, you know, we'll circle a couple things on the yellow as treats, which is mostly the fruit. And the red is just do not go there, period, right? Just don't eat. And there's enough good stuff on green that most people are pretty content there. Yeah. Well, Mark, you, what do you, we, we, sorry, sorry, no, Zach. Go, no, go ahead, Sean. We had, uh, you know, from Verta Health the other day, a guy named uh, Dr. Jeff Stanley on there. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I know Jeff. So yep. anyway, you know, they've got a, you know, a system in place with health coaches and daily check-ins and, how do you, I mean, because, you know, like you said, so many people are addicted to this stuff and it's, it's tough to, you know, uh, you know, I think the patients really just need that level of support. So what are you guys doing yeah. to, to, to help support these patients beyond the initial office visit? And yes, what's, what's the, what's the accountability? Critical, like? critical question there, which I have a, a probably a HIPAA non semi-compliant answer for. So I give all my diabetic patients who are on medication, checking their sugar, my text, you know, I've got two here today, you know, so if they're on 200 units of insulin trying to come off of insulin, I've got to be able to respond to them. Well, my doc, my blood sugar is 150 this morning. You know, I used 20 units last night. Oh, you got to have that. Now, Verda actually, you know, has that in, in place through an app and have professionally trained health coaches, you know, so they're doing this right. You know, they're doing this, you know, logging everything in spreadsheets. But until that, ha you know, I'm doing this on the fly as an N of one. But so I'll, I'll let them text me. And there's no other way for safety without someone being. And I've never had, I've been doing that for four or five years with people. And I've never had any patient abuse that kind of privilege, I guess. Like you can just text the doc. You know, everyone's afraid to give out. I mean, people can find your number, my number online somewhere. I mean, it is what it is. But for safety, you got to have. You can't just tell them, you know, cut your insulin back and see me in three months and see how it goes. You know, and then, you know, you're constantly encouraging them. You know, so my one thread on a guy this morning, you know, his sugar was 500 two weeks ago. A1C was 15. 
and he's kind of getting it, you know, so yesterday he was like 200, 150. He's lowering his insulin down gradually, you know, so just giving a man, stay on it, you're kicking ass. He needs to hear it. A former Navy guy, you know, got into trouble, but I mean, he's, he's my age, you know, I'm 52. He doesn't have another way out. You know, he's already had lower extremity, you know, toe amputations, you know, there's not a good way to go. That, how's that going to end? It's, it's, he's destroying every cell in this body, you know, one at a time. Yeah, Mark, I saw a stat the other day that, that looked at um, just diets and like changing people's nutrition. And like the, I think the stat was like 95% of people who take on a diet for weight loss ultimately end up gaining the weight back and sometimes more. And I couldn't help but wonder if some of that has to do with when people go on diets, their main focus usually ends up gravitating towards, oh, I can't have this versus this is what I, I can't have. have. Yeah. And I, I tell people like that, no matter what diet or nutrition plan they decide to take on or they find it feel is best for them, you know, focus on what you can have. Cause even the most restrictive diets that we have typically have some like a pretty deep wide range of different things you can have. Um, and like it, it ends up being more of a, like a mindset thing at that point. Is that kind of how you're looking at stuff? And, and then just as a kind of follow up to that, do you know, like, uh, what kind of success rates in terms of like adherence you have with the type of patients you see, are they kind of like far enough down the line that they're not going to, you know, mess up, so to speak, because they know like they have some potential really bad scenarios in their horizon if they continue onward? Yeah, that's a great question. So success rate, I'd say for, there's kind of two groups that, that come to me in my clinic. This is the outpatient clinic. There's people who kind of self-refer, they've read about low carb, they've heard about what we're doing. The success rate of those folks is good. They're coming prepared. And then there's other folks referred. Like, I'm not sure what they might be referred from an orthopedist, you know, from another uh, primary care doc, you know, who knows they could benefit from the conversation. And that's a group that comes not, doesn't even have any idea of what any of this is. And, and some of those folks get right on board. Others, it's just not the right time. You know, we have so many folks with economic and social stress. So if you're, you know, can't pay the bills, you know, you're, you know, your kid just overdosed, which is not an uncommon thing here. You know, you got all this stuff. It's probably not the time to start a low carb diet because they're dealing with so many other things. So we try our best to educate people for the simple stuff that really is toxic. So, you know, they call it, I mean, in Mount, in West Virginia, they call it Mountain Dew mouth, you know, so dew is everywhere. So if we can at least get people off of all those massive amounts of sugar sweetened drinks, even if they're not ready to make full change, that's like a win trying to at least get some of those folks off of those things. But the people that self-refer, and this is really what I stress, Zach, is so you'll see it, the A1Cs, the insulin reduction, the med reduction is a separate issue, metabolic health. And just like, you know, kind of as an athlete, you know, you understand that we need to teach the body to be able to utilize fat as a fuel source. Right? We've got two fuel sources and it's good to be flexible. These folks have never, ever, ever tapped into body fat as fuel. You know, so you're going to burn the fat on your body or the fat that you eat if you're fat adapted. So you'll see the metabolic health in people improve first. So our first goal is not weight loss per se, but getting you know those simple carbs out, getting the medications down, getting the insulin load down. Most of them will lose you know inches off the waist as they're doing this, but you don't want to go there. You don't want to promise them that. You want them to see success and how they feel. Are they 
needing to snack all day, then you can start working on the weight. People, the further are that you know, the further along they are in this insulin resistance, they're like it's tough. Like it's like a a big rock to move. Like a sixty-year-old who's on two hundred units of insulin versus like a thirty-year-old who has just put on some weight since college. Those folks will be able to reverse stuff really quick. But you know, folks who have beta cell failure in the pancreas just from so many years of insulin resistance, they're they're a tougher group. But yeah, so you know, get them to make some change and. Almost all folks, even if they get rid of the sugar drinks, even if they don't lose an ounce, that's huge for their health. That's and just how they feel. Hey, Mark, that's a you know you might have a, a really important point about cost because I mean that you know obviously is a barrier for many people to eat eat well and and, and quite honestly the cheapest food out there is the worst food for us basically and, and that's you know pretty well known. Um, do you think there's ever going to be an appetite or have you seen any appetite from you know perhaps employers? who have to pay insurance on their, 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 their patients or their employees might be able to sort of say, instead of spending all this money on healthcare, maybe we can assist you with, with healthy food options. I mean, do you think there's an appetite for that or any, any mechanism to do that or even the insurance companies? I mean, I think that mm-hmm. is something that makes sense to me. I mean, obviously there's people, you know, pharmaceutical companies aren't particularly going to, I mean, they're, they're happy to give you discount drugs, but I don't think they're going to help offset your cost for food. But uh, do you think there's any way to go to approach that? Yeah, that's a good, really good question. Actually, I, I listened to a podcast the other day on Mark Hyman's show from the former CEO of the Cleveland Clinic. And it sounds like they're already doing some of that in the Cleveland Clinic. I was really impressed. They were, you know, obviously they're getting rid of a lot of the crap food in the hospital, but they were, they actually went to the point that they were not hiring smokers, you know, you, West Virginia, you'd probably, you'd probably be shouted out for discrimination, but I guess they were allowed to do it. Um, they had, I have, I'd have to go back and listen, but there were a number of incentives for the employees to stay healthy. Uh, so I would hope that when the insurance industry and the hospital industry is aligned for profit, it's going to be very difficult to bring that into public health, which is probably a government intervention in removing toxins. So we still have a misaligned system of for-profit hospitals, for-profit insurance agencies that really don't have any interest to make people well. So it's going to be working around the edges until it all blows up, which it kind of has now, $3.3 trillion of healthcare. The number one for your audience out there, the number one item purchased with SNAP is soda. And you think that is no way. It's true. The number one item purchased with SNAP, which is federally assisted food supplement dollars, we built a program here at our farmer markets that double snap. We got some grants, so you can go to our local farmer market and you can actually get the meat and eggs too, not just the veggies. You know, you bring your snap EBT card, swipe it in, and we have these market bucks. So if you swiped 20 off your EBT card, you'd get 40. This year we're working on a grant to educate people at a dollar store. If you look at my state, it's all rural and they all shop for groceries at the dollar store. Now you could go with 20 bucks and get some canned chicken, you know, some uh, bagged vegetables, eggs and bacon, and some canned beans, you know, anything that's better than soda, you know, Fruit Loops. So people can make better choices with these dollars, you know, even if they are limited. Don't take them to McDonald's. Hey, let, let's, let's transition over, because we talked about this a little off before. Uh, Eat Lancet just came out with their global guidelines for world health. And, you know, I don't know how many people are aware, but when you look at the caloric breakdown, I think Marty Kendall did this. 
Beautiful. Shows, yeah. He did shows, a great I think, I think, you know, calorically, it's, I, I calculated it was like 57% of the calories are coming from grain, sugar, vegetable oils, and soy. And what are your thoughts on that? You know, and, and you know, they, obviously the, they, they way scaled down on the meat, you know, red meat, one, 1% of your diet. Yeah, 20 grams, something like that. I'm trying well, to think of well, it. Was, it, was, it was 14 grams of red meat. 14 grams. Seven grams. Of, of an egg. A fifth of an egg, something ridiculous like that. And then, and not even really heavy on fruits and vegetables, quite honestly. I mean, it was like 3% vegetables and fruit was a little more than that, I think. So when you look at that, that being proposed, and then obviously, you know, you look at some of the people that sponsored it, and it's a whole bunch of processed food companies, pharmaceutical companies, agribusiness, you know, you know uh, chemicals for, for uh, growing crops. What does that say to you? I mean, how, is, that, is that really a recipe for global health? Is that going to save our planet? Yeah, so we could link to the, I just wrote a blog on, on the whole thing. So no, this will not save the planet. And my opinion is we should not, you know, what authority does this self-appointed group have to tell the world how to eat? You know, whether people agree or disagree on the diet, the first point of discussion, should this group that is highly funded by all of them, as you mentioned, big pharma, chemical funded by a billionaire, uh, model and her husband, uh, who's a hotel mogul, and Welcome, which is backed by the Seventh-day Adventist, which is a vegetarian group. Now, I'll support anyone who wants to eat a plant-based or vegetarian diet, but the, certainly the science is not there to tell the world to do this, and the group that self-appointed the Commission of Capitals, you know, they, give, they have the gall and the lack of humility, or maybe it's narcissism, to call themselves the Commission with the capital T and the capital C. So they're out there at Harvard telling us, telling me, well, I should only have a fifth of an egg a day. You know, and I'm like, well, what am I going to do with the other four fifths of that egg? And the way it's put out, Sean, too, is very deceiving. And on my, on my blog, I actually have two graphs. They put out a nice kind of plate graphic. And if you look at that, half of that is wonderful looking. You know, it's nice, healthy vegetables that I would eat. And so you would think looking at that, you know, half of the calories are from all these wonderful vegetables. But when you actually look at the caloric breakdown on the chart, like you say, it's like 3% is actually from, you know, the leafy greens. And like you say, it's like 30 some percent is soy, corn, and grain. And it's like, I'd have to look at the chart, 14 or 16% is vegetable oils, which oxidize, which cause liver inflammation, which drive type 2 diabetes. So if you or I ate like that, we'd be diabetic in a week again. So I just challenge people with you know, they're obese or diabetic, go try this for a week and see how it goes. The other huge flaw with that analysis is, so they actually have in there that this has not been shown to have any effect on obesity. So if over half of the world is overweight, obese, pre-diabetic, and this is for the globe, whatever we put out there for public health has to address that group, because that's the group that's costing society money. You know, the healthy people will stay healthy probably no matter what they're doing. But if we're going to give a global guideline, it's got to be geared just like if you're an, uh, uh, an employer and you're going to do a public health message. Really, what you're trying to do is reach the ones who are costing you money. And they're the diabetics who cost society and their insurance companies nineteen dollars to $20,000 a year. And that isn't even the missed work. That's just the medical expense. So they're putting out there for public health with multiple conflicts of interest coming from a position of anointed authority. They're not disclosing those conflicts of interest, telling the world that they should get rid of all of these meats and animal products, you know, and they, and they reduce them to a point to be laughable. 
you know, so I eat three eggs a day and, you know, I'm an N of one. I just encourage people to be an N of one. I've had every heart test known to man right now and been in a couple studies on heart health and athletes. Zero coronary score. You know, my HDL now is over 100. You know, I had IR score, you know, on the lipid profiles. Everything is like back to like completely healthy normal. So that's working for me. If it's not working for someone else, then go eat the Lancet diet. You know, yeah, like I mean, to the it's, blog. It took a while to write the thing just because I was so angry when I saw this. Yeah, one of the things is, you know, you know, one of the, because they're, they're trying to include the sustainability in there. And I know that. Uh, oh, that's, yeah, that's another crock, you know, about. You know, well, I mean, Frank Mittlauder, who's one of the world's leading experts on greenhouse gases, said they, they flat out just doubled the estimates on methane's contribution. I mean, it's, you know, I think yeah. most people accept it's that's like true. 28 times the, the uh, effect of carbon dioxide. And they and they assume fifty six, so they they just completely doubled the the recognized uh, numbers for that. And, and not to mention that it's much the half life is much shorter lived than it, than carbon dioxide is in, in the atmosphere by orders of magnitude. But uh, so I mean, it's it's just you know you're right there. They're, they're they're they put themselves up as they are the authorities. They are the leading experts in the world on this. And you know it's 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 amazing. I mean, it's obviously it's being backed by these people that have a lot of money that have an interest and are standing to, to profit tremendously. You know, if you look at these processed food companies, I mean, that's, that's Tremend- yeah. One of the profit. companies, uh, Sean was an artificial meat company, which, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm an idiot, but I think, I think they probably would benefit if the world got rid of meat, you know, the, the fake burger, it was us. Uh, Yarvin was the company. And then what's curious too, a week after that report, another article came out and the Lancet from another, from in the Lancet, the journal, it's a British journal, making uh, the case that global food initiatives need to separate from the food industry. It was another big global food movement, completely opposite of the one they published the week before. So I don't know, someone, someone's making some money somewhere. <laughs> so you just got to follow it, you know, whenever follow the money and that'll tell you where the opinions come from. Some things never change. I don't have any conflicts of interest. I'm not getting paid by anyone uh, other than my employer. Let me ask you what um, I know, because we often hear about low carb diets and, you know, the, the big pushes, you know, diabetes and, and, and obesity. What other sort of things are you seeing? Because I, I'm just seeing a whole bunch of things that, that you know, all, all these idiopathic diseases, even arthritis, which, you know, I was always under the impression it's wear and tear mechanics, obesity causes, you know, you know overload of the joints, so on and so forth. But that's not turning out to be true in my experience. Are you seeing anything similar to that with other types of medical issues? Oh, heck yeah. You know, certainly a lot of the neurologic, you know, migraines is a big one. Any chronic pain condition, um, we could link. I also, I published a survey article about a year ago of 1,500 people that had done a low-carb diet. You know, I did it through SurveyMonkey. And it, I had an open comment area, you know, is there any other aspect of your life that's been changed by this diet? And, you know, got like over a 1,000 comments, you know, just all these stories. I need to compile another article just of all those testimonials and make it a book because whether it's, you know, mental health, clarity, depression, and, and, and the people that would fill out a survey like that are the people that probably have succeeded. So it's not a randomized trial, but it just lends proof of principle that, you know, for specific people who do this, this is sustainable and it's life changing. 30% of the people who filled out that survey had been on the diet for two years and over half had been on it for more than a year. 
So, and I don't call it, I take that, I don't even call it a diet. It's really a lifestyle change. So the diet's the four letter word, but yeah, so, so across the board, and there are certain types of cancer, but you know, none of us, yourself included, are claiming that for every individual, it's going to send them to the holy, the holy land in Shangri-La. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's discipline and it's a challenge, you know, if everyone else in your family eats junk food and, you know, you've got to do this, it's a discipline. Do you see any, uh, are you seeing any evidence of mental health disorders improving? Because I, I certainly have been. Is that something in your practice? Because they often go, hey, you know, if you're, if you're obese, miserable, and in pain, you know, obviously you think those things away, your mental health yeah. is going to go away. But I've seen, you know, in absence of weight loss, because a lot of people put this down just to weight loss. And I've had skinny people that have gone on their diet for other reasons. You know, they've had irritable bowel disease or something like that. And those things occur without weight loss. So are you seeing stuff in absence of weight loss? Because many people put this down to says, that says any diet makes you lose weight loss is going to improve these things. And, you know, let's talk about mental health a little bit. Oh, heck yeah. And just yesterday. So what makes me really happy is when uh, one of our trainees is doing this and shares a story. So just yesterday, one of my trainees, we teach here residents who are family doctors in training, had a PCOS, a polycystic ovarian syndrome patient who had been trying to get pregnant with anxiety, depression. So, you know, she didn't really call it low carb, but she got, used the food list, got her off of a bunch of foods, wrote me, she's starting having periods again, which obviously will increase your odds of getting pregnant. And the anxiety is gone. And it's like, and the migraine. So those two things, these were big things. And so, heck yeah, you know, and, and I know there's randomized trials and out, out there on, and, you know, certainly a lot of epidemiology on diet, whether it's low carb or, but Diet has a huge effect on your psychology. Georgia Ede, maybe we could link a couple of her top articles. She's in schizophrenia. You know, there's a couple of recent articles on case reports and then the, the background. And uh, Christopher Palmer just gave an amazing lecture up in Harvard, which is public, on multiple mental health aspects of low-carb diet. That'd be a one, it's a 60-minute presentation. People need to watch that. He had, he had so much evidence and references on there i wouldn't do justice even just go watch this presentation it was so good i'm like, do you know dr palmer he's a he's I'm, a, not, I'm not familiar we've had dr oh, dr eads on the program before and i, I know georgia but uh, no, I, haven't, I haven't run into him yet I'll, so I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll connect you to him and, and amazing you watch this he's done his homework and i'm sure he has stories about you know trying to get this through through at harvard but a lot of people think sean too like oh harvard it's all the walter willett know, uh, plant-based camp, but that's not true. You know, da uh, David Ludwig is there, uh, Hasama Hamdi at the Joslin Center, who's been a huge advocate for low and lower carb diets for diabetes. You know, Dr. Palmer there now, it's such a big place that I think the vocal people with a lot of the political backing, you know, industry backing, yeah, when they say something, you know, it hits the media, so it blows up. But when, you know, now luckily, you know, Dr. Ludwig's article is out there, you know, just that gets suppressed, I think, so it doesn't get the same like, why isn't every single person on the planet reading Dr. Ludwig's JAMA article on what happens to the body's, you know, energy output with a low-carb diet? You know, wow, powerful article. Yeah, that was an interesting study. And, and you know, the critics of that study have said, you know, it was maintenance and, you know, they, they, they changed the randomization. Uh, yeah, how do you criticize? Maintenance? You know, it's, 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 you know, but I mean, there's always going to well, be. I mean, they can a little bit, but yeah, it's. it's but it does, you know, like I said, I think that, that that goes a long way to support, you know, at least, uh, you know, you can make a, a case that, you know, at least 
in maintenance phase, it's easier to eat more food, you know, on a low carb diet. And, and many people, you know, this is a thing. One of the big knocks against a low carb diet is it's not sustainable. And yet there are literally millions of people that have done it for years, you know, and growing. And, and, you know, it's like, at what point do you say it's not sustainable? Yeah. yeah I think- I mean, how many millions of people are on Facebook groups and it's, yeah, it is what it is. In, in my experience too, with like working with people trying to like implement a, a low carb diet is a lot of it just is, it's different enough from the standard American diet in a lot of people's minds that like, there's definitely the pitfalls that are easy to kind of get down into if you don't know what you're doing or if you don't have the supports there kind of when you're starting out. So like, you know, I, I wonder if sometimes people are going out on this journey without necessarily looking into exactly how to implement it within their lifestyle and then running into problems that could be, could be avoided. Um, you know, it's why I like to hear, you know, guys like yourself, Mark, come in and share like kind of your protocol and what you're doing to really help people put it in place in a way that it's going to, is going to be sustainable. Cause really I think it's about time. Like the more time you spend implementing it, then it becomes routine. Then that becomes the norm. Then it feels weird to deviate from that. So then it becomes even more sustainable because it's just not something that is uh, outside your routine. Yeah, and I need, Sean knows the term wingman, right, Sean, from back in the day? Yeah, so, yeah, so you got to have a wingman. And, I, you know, I'll use that term for people that know any military culture. So, you know, like in AA, you know, they everyone has a buddy if you go to AA. You know, you've got your buddy that's going to be the person to keep on track so unless you're living in a low-carb tribe which very few in West Virginia are we're the number one obese state so I say who is your person who's going to help keep you on track you know they've got to have someone unless they're just you know a total headstrong person but almost everyone needs needs a buddy you know someone kind of like if the family is going to kind of do this with them it's such a huge win so, I mean, I, I, my, my kids aren't on low carb diets, but we eat real food. So if it's Sunday, they'll have some pasta, but we're always making sausage and meatballs. And I'm not some weirdo cooking my own food every day. We're, we're eating the same meals. They just, you know, they're growing teenagers. They may have a little more carb than, than I do, but yeah, so they're, you know, they're supportive of this. So they have to, and that's why we really encourage at these clinic visits to bring in who's the person cooking for you. Who's the person shopping, you know, who do you share? Like just come in as a family and let's talk about it because then like odds are if there's one patient, but the spouse is usually another patient too. They just haven't been referred yet. You know, they, they tend to look the same cause they eat the same. And it's really cool when you see both of them make change and then can pass it on to their kids. That's a cool thing too. Yeah. It's kind of uh, you know, interesting. You just watch some of these people age. They, they, they almost start to lose. They, they become androgynous almost. They kind of swell up, they get the glasses and they just, their face looks almost like you get the male and the female. They yeah, they get, you know, the gynecomastia, you know, yeah, the, all yeah. the estrogen of the fat. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's kind of crazy. But hey, let me ask you a question on uh, what do you, what do you, what do you think about protein? Are do you, do you value it? Do you tell people to minimize that? How do you deal with protein in the diet? I mean, there's, there's some people out there that think, you know, if you eat a lot of protein, it's going to cause cancer. It's going to cause you to age more. There's other people that think, no, protein is essential for maintaining healthy muscle mass is going to, and that mm-hmm. strength is going to lead to better longevity and function. Where, where do you come down on protein? Yeah, as, as you know, Sean, this is very nuanced and very individual depending on your goals. So most of the people I'm seeing probably aren't people following you on Twitter who are strength trainers or low carb have read everything and they're looking at all these little details. 
So I just want to get people a win. I, I think, you know, for the majority of people, if you eat food in its natural state, it's going to have the right combination of fat and protein. You know, so if you eat, you know, two eggs in the morning, if you're a smaller person, three eggs, if you're a bigger person, you know, you're not trimming the fat off of the steak or the chicken. You know, you're just, you're not getting low fat, obviously. You're just getting real cheese, real butter. I think the proportions of things are going to work out well. And, you know, it's going to be a predominantly, you know, moderate protein, limited carbohydrate, fat to satiety type type of diet. I'm not telling people to, you know, eat sticks of butter or have, make all these fat bombs and, you know, throw heaps of coconut oil on. I just want to keep things simple. I, that's why we look at the food list, you know. And if you mix it up, you know, if you mix up foods, you know, you have uh, fat-soluble vitamins in, in the salads. You know, you dump olive oil on, on those salads. You know, that's a delivery system of the micronutrients of the salad. If you dump some type of fat on it, you know, butter on the veggies. So I just stay there. And I think, you know, unless they're trying to add or build, you know, muscle mass, you know, then I think you might want to up the protein a little bit more, you know, maybe a little more lean meat. But that, that's not really who I'm dealing with medically. And I, I, there's so many other people that'd be more, you know, expert on on building muscle. Someone like yourself, you know, you would know. Okay, I want to gain or maintain muscle mass. But a, a little caveat to that, Sean, is the aging population. You know, so they should not be afraid of protein. You know, so anyone my age, to your age, you know, uh, the advanced elderly with sarcopenia, there's all of this signaling that happens from lifting heavy things and adding protein in the diet. You know, and that's food protein. You know, an egg, you know, meat, and it could be a little leaner, but in no way would I ever be telling most of the elderly I see who are frail to restrict protein in hopes that they're going to live longer, you know, by some down regulation of, you know, mTOR, you know, but I don't know if that explains it. Eat real food, just don't eat the junk food. You know, yeah, Mark, that's I was going to ask you kind of about that too, because like you had mentioned earlier about kind of your, your forte into a lower carbohydrate was with some of the original Atkins type, um, like programming. And like, I think some people like probably remember the old Atkins more than kind of the new Atkins. Mm -hmm. and the old Atkins was actually fairly liberal with protein. Whereas when I saw the kind of high fat, low carb keto, uh, Remerge, I guess, in the last decade or so, there was uh, at least in the early stages this uh, thought of like we need to limit protein yeah. and really I ramp up the too. fat. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see everything kind of like adjust to some of that programming, and now we're starting to kind of almost see it go back go to back to common sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> like what your grandparents ate, real food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, do you books. do you well, how do you look at protein? Do you put parameters on that, or do you just say be sensible? Be sensible. I, I don't think anyone knows how to count anything. You know, any study of people that actually are doing cal, you know, food logs, you know, they're off by 30 to 50%. I don't know how many grams of protein I ate yesterday, but I had three eggs. I had a steak for dinner. You know, I, I do eat some vegetables. I had a nice salad, bunch of cheese on that. So, you know, I probably got at least, you know, one gram per kilo of lean body weight, which for me probably way more than that. If you went through it, I probably was up to like, I'm active. I run. So if people eat, real food and don't calorie restrict, they will get adequate. It's really hard to not get adequate protein unless you're, you know, eating a stick of butter for breakfast instead of an egg and some bacon or, you know, some country ham or something. You'll get all your protein needs if you just eat the food as it is. Now, if you're a D1 football player, 
trying to gain muscle mass, that might be a different equation. I wouldn't be able to answer to the specific protocols for that for that one. But for the majority out there, and again, it's it's very nuanced. So satiety is huge. And if you're not full, so I think I, I tell people who aren't, you know, they, they're just not feeling full that they got to increase their protein and fat usually together. Protein is very satiating. And fat is very satiating. So in some way, they're going to respond a little different to different things. So they got to eat. We can't make people hungry. That's non-negotiable in all of this. If you are hungry, you will eat. And I tell patients that, look, if you are hungry, you're going to eat. I don't want you hungry. We need to figure figure this out. We should probably, you know, and they're all told to calorie restrict too, you know, from somewhere, whether it's a commercial program. There's a study called the Minnesota Starvation Study, which is fascinating. It's, they'll never do it again because it'll never get through a review board. They restricted conscientious objectors to 1,500 calories for 24 weeks at the end of World War II. And you have to watch the video of this. It's a disaster. 1,500 calories. I mean, we're telling people as doctors, not, not myself, but we're telling people to go cut back their calories to that. And everything in their whole bodies were shut off. All they thought about all day was food. Their metabolism slowed tremendously. You know, they're hungry all day. It's just a disaster to, to do that. And that was just a basic, you know, American diet, 1,500 calories. So yeah, I mean, it's uh, there. one of the things I saw, I think there was a study, uh, there's, there's a shake diet coming out of the UK, I think, and I think it was yes. an 800 calorie a day diet, which I mean, is even worse. The direct That's, study. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that, that, you know, that and cutting, cutting half your stomach out or whatever, you know, gastric bypass stuff or, you know, eat mm -hmm. food that actually works pretty well That's with good. a low carb diet. I mean, those are your options out there. Let me ask you about exercise. You know, you talk about some pillars of health. How do you, how, how and when do you incorporate, or if do you, do you incorporate exercise in your patient's life? Because a lot of them, you know, you get this 52-year-old, you know, BMI of 51, uh, diabetic on 16 medications. You know, telling her to go out and jog ain't going to work. It ain't going to do it for her. No, no. How, how does, how does that, how do you roll that in and, and incorporate into their lives? How does that work? Yeah, again, I don't try to, just like the word diet, I try not to use the word exercise and I think this was in Tim Ferriss's book, you know, ounces are lost in the gym, pounds in the kitchen. So I want them to understand that movement is just, it does so many wonderful things for their muscles, for their brain, for their mood. So the exercise is not for weight loss. The exercise is just to make them feel good, feel stronger, help their posture. So I'm just trying to get them to figure out how they can add some movement into their day. You know, I mean, the common stuff we all talk about, you know, walk instead of driving everywhere, take the stairs. I've got a stand-up desk here. You know, just move more. Now, if your job is not involving any movement, then you've got to self-inflict a little after work or before work. You know, get a dog. You know, that's powerful too. Anything now, the, the like the orthopedic patients, Sean, these people can't run. Their knees and hips are trashed, but they can walk usually. And once they get some of that, and I, I forget the stat, like every pound on your belly equals about four pounds of joint torque force running through your knee and hip. And they're in so much pain, they can't walk. But once they lose, if they just focus on the food first and lose about 20 or 30 pounds off their belly, then usually they can start walking again. And then it's, oh, it's a process. The pool is wonderful. Water is magic. You know, so where you guys are, you guys have, you know, warmth and pools all year round. So just walking in a three foot end, you know, anything that gets them moving, that helps insulin sensitivity too. You know, so it's not, you know, you'll have certain camps say it's all the diet. I don't think all anything. It's, a, it's some combination that fits each person. 
get rid of the sleep apnea because that'll really affect their insulin resistance. It's really hard to succeed if, if they're not sleeping at night. Night shift people have a really difficult time because their whole endocrine system, circadians, is really whacked. Yeah, we had a, a gal on, and a gal. We had we had Dr. Gabrielle Lyon on the other day. She's another physician who's who's she calls herself muscle centric, and she's mm-hmm. very much a animal based diet, low carb exercise. And in the the she has kind of a concierge practice, and, and it's mostly higher level people that want to perform. But she's got an, she's got a whole team of you know exercise specialists and you know, all these different components plugged in there. Is that something that you have any access to? Like, you know, if you've got like, you know, if you're going to, cause you're taking, you know, the, you know, if you say a typical West Virginia patient has got, you know, too many. Yeah, we don't have any problems. concierge stuff. You don't have, but I mean, is there any, like, any, is there anybody on the team that can help you? I mean, you got oh, people yeah. to refer to that, that like, like with regard to exercise and, and health coaches and stuff like that. Is that, is that play a role? Yeah, we have a wonderful wellness center, which is very affordable. We have program out. I wish we had a Y. YMCAs are awesome for communities out there that have a Y. Um, uh, not to plug my running store, but we have a lot of community activities. Almost every day there's a group one run or walk. Some people need the tribe to go exercise, so it doesn't cost them anything. You know, show up here and there's, you know, you're going to find someone at your level to run or walk, so that's a, a good thing to do. But I don't have any personal trainer person that I can directly refer people to. But the well, we have a wellness center at my hospital that's very low cost. They'll get very specific kind of training from someone who's really skilled just so that, you know, they're going to go lift just so they have good posture and good lifting mechanics. You know, they're going to walk on a treadmill, make sure they know how to balance correctly. So, yeah. And, and we've got some community partners trying to work. We do a lot of stuff with kids in schools too. So it, it's kind of grassroots network. Now for a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very, uh, you know, enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Remember, to get your discount and free bacon, type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now, back to the show. Hey, Mark. You highlighted something I do kind of want to talk about, too, uh, along the lines of fitness and uh, mechanics and that has a lot to do with your running store, Two Rivers Treads. And we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the show, but I think we can dive in a little deeper. And, you know, I work with special specialty shops a lot of times around the country and, and mostly in Arizona. And, you know, one message I oftentimes bring into those shops is, you know, you want to keep the specialty in the shop because otherwise mm-hmm. people are just going to go online and buy their products. And one way I usually advocate for them to do that is to create this community environment around their store. So people don't see it as just this 
brick and mortar local business where they can go in, pick up a pair of shoes and leave, but they go in and they get a full experience. And then on top of that, you know, there's all these activities that are put on by the store, like group runs, group walks, fitness programs, and things like that. So when it does come time to get a shoe, they would feel awful if they went anywhere but that spot to buy that product. So it kind of feeds itself more or less. So um, why don't you share with our listeners, if they were to go to Two Rivers Treads and walk in, what would they expect going into your store? Yeah, I'm really proud of my store. We've almost been 10 years in business now. You know, we opened with a platform of just like if I were to open a restaurant, I wouldn't sell soda and white bread, you know, so people can find that stuff anywhere else. I wanted to fit people in shoes that complemented the normal development of the foot and help them rehab their feet. So I'd say half of our customers act are just walkers, right? They're folks that their feet are just like jacked up. You know, their toes are squished together. You know, they've been in horrible shoes. You know, they've got fallen arches just from all those intrinsic muscle weaknesses. So we get them in like a nice wide shoe just to walk around, let the toes spread. You know, we've got some adaptive devices like correct toes, which will help spread out those toes if they've got that big toe that's bent in. Um, a couple different arch type, but they're not supports. One's called Barefoot Science. It kind of adds a little stimulus right into the arch, which will kind of wake those muscles up, gets them doing like a short foot posture all day. So you're kind of rehabbing them out of that. We do an assessment like a specific shoe fit, which is more about them than the shoe. You know, do they have any ankle mobility? Can they get into a squat? What's their posture? We put them on a cool little treadmill called the true form runner it's a motorless treadmill have you seen those zach it's yeah mm -hmm. true form it's not quite as steep as a woodway but you can't run wrong on the damn thing because <laughs> it's got this little curve and you got to make it go so if you're over striding you know in a big shoe it just goes it stops so it gets them to learn shorten their stride a little bit so we get them to do all those things we have a plantar pressure plate so we're giving them a service of of learning and progressive education, getting them in a shoe that not everyone's going to get into a super minimal shoe, but all of our shoes are going to be either zero or low drop. You know, as you know, from ultra, some are very minimal, but some aren't minimal, but they're all anatomic, meaning really wide, you know, no difference between the heel and the ball of the foot and the, and the ramp, you know, we call it a drop of a shoe mm -hmm. as light as it can be, you know, for the purpose trail versus a, you know, street walking shoe. But yeah, we listen to the customer, you know, what are their needs, but we want to rehab them, you know, get them healthier, just like the food stuff versus just put another Band-Aid on something. Yeah, you know, that that's one thing I'll usually share with folks too, is I think sometimes people forget that their lower legs, like their foot, those are muscles and those muscles are going to behave the same way as all the other muscles. And one of the things I'll always say is like, if, if you decided to put a cast or a brace on like your wrist or your arm, or if you broke your arm and, and actually had a cast on there and you know, you spent six to maybe eight weeks in that cast or brace and you took it off. If you went back to the gym and did your exact same routine as you did before that arm or that wrist, that would, you would be in pain the next day. So to think that you can kind of just take your foot, which is, I mean, everyone's foot is in a cast nowadays, at least in, in first world countries and you know, no matter, even if you have something as small as like a minimal issue, that's still a small cast. So we're working with like this different range of like of muscle atrophy more or less due to that protection we're putting on our feet. So like when I, when I talk to folks, I'm like, what you want to do is you definitely want to strengthen those muscles. You don't want to be living your life with weak lower leg muscles because then you're just ripe for injury. And uh, you know, so then it becomes a point of like, well, where do we put you in? right now versus where do you want to be maybe down the road 
And I remember when the minimalist movement first kind of came, came through, it almost caught fire too quick, in my opinion, and that people wanted to go from their 12 millimeter offset, big stability shoes into the Vibram five fingers. And, you know, that's like going go zero to a hundred. Day one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. You got to treat it like you would, you know, the first day at the gym, you know, yes. one set instead of three, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, that's where, where I think, uh, you know, brands like ultra footwear have kind of attempted to more or less bridge that gap between your pure minimalist shoe and like your traditional running shoe. And then lets you walk down all the way to like, you know, barefoot if you want to get that far down. And, uh, you know, the other thing I always find interesting too, is like in, in the running community, uh, a lot of times people are looking at like knee pain and hip pain and right away they think, okay, I need more cushion on my shoe because my knees or my hips hurt. And my understanding has always been that like, when we're looking at pain that's kind of up the kinetic chain, like further away from the first point of impact, which is going to be the bottom of your foot, those, to- those types of pain are going to be more amplified by cushion because it's going to allow your foot more freedom to land in a less than ideal or less biomechanically sound manner. And therefore, someone with knee and hip pain should actually probably be looking for a firmer shoe as opposed to a soft one. And it's someone who maybe has like, you know, a sore foot or a sore ankle would maybe want a natural shoe with a little bit of cushion to kind of save that point of impact. Am I kind of on the right track there? Yeah, you are. And again, just like diet and nutrition, it's nuanced. So the joint torque forces going through your knee and your hip will not be reduced by a more cushioned shoe. So think of it like your foot is like a, think of if you had a Hummer and that's the shock absorber is your foot. Something's got to take, take the hit, you know, when you hit a bump. So if you lock out the shock, you know, something else on the chassis has got to take the load. So ideally your foot, I mean, watch how kids run, you know, their foot in the Kenyans, right? They're springy. You know, you've got four layers of muscles, intrinsic muscles in, in, the, in your foot. And you have all these muscle tendon insertions, you know, over 100 attaching, you know, if you look at our feet. So this is like a suspension spring system, like, you know, jumping rope, you know, it should be effortless. So as soon as you decommission that shock absorbing function, something else has to take up the load. Now you could put a little bit of cushion on a shoe and that's going to dampen that a little bit, but your hips and knees are also going to take that. So ideally what you would do is, is uh, fix the foot and treat that like a shock absorber, which is really goes back to basic training. You know, you got to be willing to slow down, you know, and teach yourself how to move differently again. Now Irene Davis has some fascinating data and this, you know, you would understand this act kind of from a running perspective. So and I, I was participated twice in the Boston Marathon with an accelerometer on my ankle. One year I was in uh, sandals, you know, just running sandals, which is like a piece of, of tread, and the other year in five fingers. And um, she had three groups. So one group was in the big bulky shoe, the other was in a racing shoe, and the other group was a true minimal shoe. A racing shoe is a thin piece of foam. And she was looking at all of these forces and acceleration and deceleration. And the group that was had the best force pattern were the true minimal, like barefoot pattern. But you'd think, well, the people, you know, in the racing shoe, you know, they're going to be like maybe a little better. And then the people in the big bulky shoe are going to be the worst. But what happened was the big bulky shoe, these people actually looked better than the racing shoe, you know, which is the super thin shoe. And probably this is my hypothesis of why that is is the people who put on the racing shoe, which is a little bit of cushion, haven't fixed how they run yet. So they just run in the bad pattern and then they go out race day and wear the skinny shoe. 
And that's probably not a good idea. But the people who run all the time barefoot or in a five finger, super, you know, no cushion, zero cushion, they've changed their movement pattern enough that they could put on any shoe, really. That's like a Kenyan. You could put on any running shoe for them and they're probably going to have a perfect pattern because they've run millions of, maybe not millions, you know, thousands and thousands of miles, you know, barefoot on dirt roads. So they like have beautiful springy pattern. But training the foot, I, you know, I talk about it a lot in my book. I have a couple chapters on the foot, training the foot, the foot spring, and that walks people through how to self-assess themselves too. You know, mm-hmm. get the shoe. Find a shoe store that actually listens to you and not just wants to put you in a Brooks or something, you know, some, you know, brand, you know, because there's a lot of really good brands out there that have nice, flat, wide shoes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the other part of the foot that I'm always interested about is the Achilles tendon, because I think uh, minimalist and zero drop has gotten like this, this reputation to some degree where if someone has had issues with Achilles tendonitis in the past, they, they're kind of fearful of that. And the way I explain it, and, and definitely tell me if I'm off base here, but I'm looking at the Achilles tendon as kind of a spring. Yes. And that spring, when you're put in your natural position, is going to be able to have its full range of motion up and yeah. down. So now we add a lift to the heel and we condense that spring. So this yeah, spring is like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's loaded at a smaller range of motion. So you're just using this really finite range of that spring. So then when you do bring it back down, now all of a sudden you're using parts of that Achilles tendon that otherwise would have been compressed. Uh, and it, it takes a little bit of time, just like if you, if you, if you get inflexible and you know, you can't just like, stretch all the way and touch the ground with the palms of your hands the first day you have to kind of work your way down to getting that you got to remobilize those areas mm-hmm. um and you know the achilles tendon that spring is meant as as like a performance spring. oh my so gosh yeah you want that thing to be fully engaged if you can get it that way so when people tell me like you know what i can't I have to have a lift in my heel uh you know I, I try to be delicate and sympathetic to that but i also think well but maybe it would be worth trying to get back that range of motion so that you can really take full advantage of your body's mechanical ability to have that power output. One of the, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about, you know, Achilles pathology, you know, we see so much Achilles tendinopathy or Achilles tendinitis is that uh, in many cases we see it, you know, very common in people with diabetes or prediabetes. And, you know, I had a foot and ankle surgeon when I was training. He was always about this stuff. These are all, he, could, he could diagnose diabetes, diabetes by looking at somebody's Achilles tendon flexibility. So that's one thing that occurs for sure is the Achilles tendon shortens over time and it becomes less flexible. People become symptomatic. And one of the treatments is, you know, stretching, stretching exercises, so on and so forth. And so chronically wearing a heel is going to lead to a shorter Achilles tendon. So I think your point on that is – but I want to echo, Sean, what you said there. I was at the American Academy of Podiatric Sports Medicine conference this fall, and uh, his name is Nick Mufoli. He's like the lead tendon researcher pretty much in the world. He's based out of London now, and his lecture was tendinopathies as a metabolic disease, and exactly what you're saying. And I'm like, thank you, because <laughs> that's what we see clinically. And he's walking through all the pathways of inflammation, how you cannot heal these tendinopathies. If you're pre-diabetic, diabetic, you know, we're all talking about foam rolling and all this stuff. But like if if they're there, you got to address that could be their root cause is just they're inflamed. You know, and, uh, you know, Zach, you know, a good assessment we put people through is can they get into a deep squat, you know, proper deep squat like a kid. You know, if they can get into a deep squat, they've got good, you know, ankle Achilles mobility. 
you know, if they can't and they're stuck, you know, then we want to gradually get them to do some exercises, you know, gradually work their way into that squat. And that's going to take eight to 12 weeks to lengthen that Achilles tendon. But I know there's a reference and I can try to find it. So we have the assumption is there's less strain on the Achilles strain, meaning you know, what are the mechanical forces going through the Achilles? We would think that if we put a heel, there'd be less strain on the Achilles, but that's not true. You know, so that assumption, while you've got Achilles tendinopathy, raise the heel, it's going to be less strain on the Achilles. That That isn't true. You know, probably to your analogy, so if you're kind of shortening that bungee to the point it's not a proper tension, different things have to activate to go through movement. But again, like it, I don't tell people who are feel, but like say you've got a bad Achilles tendinopathy and you put a little lift in and you can walk around at work and that feels good. Sure, do that. But then... Let's work, you know, work on after work. Let's try to get you doing some exercises to correct the problem. But it's, it is very nuanced. And as Sean, you've seen in the treatments, everyone's so unique. It's such a dreaded injury when you get it. Yeah, one of the, I think, things that's coming out, and I think slowly it's getting its way in the literature, is the effect of dietary components on our tissues. And, uh, you know, tendons are certainly part of that. I don't know if it's going to turn out more that it's, you know, due to like advanced glycation end products due to, you know, perhaps too much fructose in the diet or too much glucose or whether it's the seed oils, because I think probably equally they are probably. probably above. And so it'd be interesting to see how you know, more and more people pay attention to this uh, over time. Yeah, I think healthy fat is motor oil. That's how I explain it to people. I mean, like the fascia, which is like the Achilles. I mean, how many millions of fibers are in that Achilles? I mean, it's, it's got to be probably something like that, you know, because they're just kind of bands and bands and, you know, all these bundles of, and they all slide and glide like vermicelli noodles. You know, I know you haven't seen a box of those in a while, but you know what I'm talking about, those skinny noodles and healthy fats add lubrication into that fascia. You know, all these folks who wake up just feeling all creaky, if they just, you know, ate a few avocados, you know, had a nice, you know, farm fresh egg, quite often they wake up the next day and they don't feel like so Stuck, you know, like a uh, stiff man. Yeah, there's uh, my experience of dealing with people and myself. You know, you wake up feeling good if you have some healthy fats, olive oil, you know, whatever it is, just not vegetable oil. That stuff's. Yeah, I think Stefan Guyane wrote a, uh, an article recently, I think it was published in maybe, maybe 2015, looking at uh, the actual fat composition of human fat and how it has changed over the last several decades. And it is tremendously you know, we've incorporated so much more of these polyunsaturated. It's like know, omega-6 six, six, dominant? Yeah, omega-6 omega oh. dominant, you know, mostly. It's, ah, it's like the cows, cows, right? It's like the bad cows versus the good ones. Well, yeah, but I mean, it, it all accumulates in our body fat and no doubt in all of our membranes. So in all of our nervous tissue, all of our, you know, all of our muscle tendons, brain, you know, all that stuff's accumulating. And, and, it, and I think it, my understanding is, you know, one or two years, it's, it, it takes up resin. So you might have to, exclude that stuff from your diet for several years to, to truly, you know, re, re benefit yeah. over time. Re, yeah. Reprogram that. Yeah. That you can fix people's blood glucose in like two days, but yeah, those other, you know, the body's cells turn over, you know, so if you look at yourself as a cellular organism, you know, in, the, in a year and a half, you're an entirely new you, every single cell in your body will have turned over. So the signals we give to it, some things go away quickly, just like a blood sugar level. But if you're looking at remodeling all of your fascia tissue, you know, that's going to take a a couple of years. It's like you're building the plane, you know, in the air, you know, a cell at a time by giving it the right message, you know, sleep, 
get rid of the stress, eat real food and little, I mean, you see people's skin change, right? Like you, like, wow, did you just get some new cream for your face? And when you see people like a year later when they fix their diet, they don't look all crusty. And that's happening inside too. You know that if their skin is just looking like butter again, right? It's just so smooth, you know, then that their blood vessels and their organs are looking better too. Yeah, there's an interesting, and, and I, you know, I think it has some clinical utility. There's something called an autofluorescence uh, age reader that you can you can actually measure someone's advanced glycation uh, state via mm-hmm. autofluorescence on the skin, and it's highly correlated to vascular health, you know, brain health, all these things. And it might just be, you know, it may be something worth looking into down the road as a way to kind of assess progress because, like you said, skin, teeth. What's going on the outside often is very reflective of what's going on in the inside. And a lot of people will say that just because you look good and healthy doesn't mean anything. I, I would argue that. Well, I would argue. I would say that's why we have physical exams. One of the, you know, one of the things you take a physical exam. Patient looks, you know, looks state at age or not. Yeah. That, that's, that's in there for a reason. Oh, yeah. I mean, microcapillaries, mitochondria. I mean, you see it in people's skin. You know, it's not like it's selective. So to say, well, it's got to be, it's doing wonderful thing to your skin, but it must be clogging your coronaries. I mean, what the, because the, you're getting rid of all that arterial stiffening. You know, that's why people feel good. I mean, it's, it's silly, but, you know, if people say silly things, then it is what it is. Just patients, like as you're doing, Sean, by this podcast and Zach, you're empowering them to open the literature, you know, and uh, be their own, you know, advocate for health but get good advice you know so you want to make sure people giving you advice aren't selling you products of stuff you know we're telling you to eat 800 calories a day or something like that hey mark let me ask you another question i know we're, we're, we use a lot of your time but this is a, an often topic that comes up in the low carb circles how do you deal with uh people that go on a low carb diet and see their cholesterol go up because it certainly does happen from time to time and what is your response do you put them on a statin drug? You say, let's look at some other things. What is your algorithm for dealing with that situation? Yeah, again, we're learning a lot about that now. So we know in the, you know, the last couple of months, some really powerful studies showing if you took across the board, not saying you know, there's group data and then there's you as an individual. Across the board, we know that in population studies, putting people on a low-carb diet will improve cardiovascular markers in population studies. So we know as a population intervention, we don't need to worry that this is causing more heart disease. Now, if an individual has, and, and Dave Feldman's done an amazing stuff, you know, with this lean mass hyper responder. And I think, Zach, you're in the study that Finney and Volek published just last year based on the people in the FASTER trial. So you guys fit that paradigm. So across the board, you know, the group that you were in, the low-carb adapted athletes had super high LDLs, but you had very uh, low you had low particle number and you had low insulin resistance scores. Your HDLs were like double um, your glucose, all your other cardiac markers in that group were better other than the LDL was high. Now in the AHA algorithms, I think this is good because if you're someone we know in the group data, I think it's Mesa was the study that if your coronary artery calcium score is zero or less than a hundred, you will not benefit from a stat no matter what, your cholesterol is. Now, if you have a coronary artery calcium score, and for those listening, what that is, it's a, it's a thin cut CT scan that costs about a hundred bucks. That It sees the disease, it looks for plaque. 
But if you're in this intermediate risk group, you're, you know, Sean or I's age, 52, you know, we've all lived pretty hard all our lives, you know, a lot of stress, a lot of shit in our bodies. You know, we have high LDLs and the doc wants to put you on a statin. Ask for a calcium score test. It's a hundred bucks. If your insurance company doesn't pay for it, go get it. If you have no plaque on your arteries, zero or just a little smudge, you will not benefit from a statin. But if you do have a lot of plaque on your arteries, there is a little difference in those lines and those are mortality curves. So if a friend of mine came to me, was a runner, you know, and had high LDL on a low carb diet and hadn't had a lot of plaque, and had a parent that had heart disease in the 30s, and they had kids, <laughs> I'd say from what we know now, there's probably something from the statin, not so much for LDL lowering, but for plaque stabilization. But I think that's a small player than everything else that's driving the plaque. So figure out what's driving the plaque in the individual. But there is a subgroup, I think, that would, at least from what we know, and it's, they're called numbers needed to treat. You know, so how many people do you need to give a medication before you're gonna help one, and then at what side effect. Everything has a trade-off. So I think it's a very individual decision you're gonna have with your doctor with the right data, which would in many people include a calcium score. Um, have you had one of those, Sean? Have you, you've probably heard of that test. Zero, yeah, mine's zero yeah. too. Yeah. So yeah, so zero means whatever we're doing, we've gotten away with some stuff in life, and what we're doing now is actually good. So there's no plaque. So you or I would not benefit. So I don't really care what my cholesterol is. I don't have any plaque. And I know my last test, the HDL was super high, but that's me. But someone else might respond different and they might need. But find a good doc who actually understands the literature and can make a good, you know, it's shared decision making. I don't tell people they should do this or that. Here's the information, you know, but if they had a horrible side effect on a statin, even if it says we need, you know, to give 80 people a statin to help one, which you know, might be a reasonable number, but if you can't go do your exercise because your muscles hurt, let's think of something else to try, you know, that might, you know, placate that little bit. So I know it kind of went around there, but that's a very complex question, but we know across the board to summarize a low carb diet will not, you know, contribute to a worse lipid profile. And that lipid profile, we don't know if it has anything to do with heart disease. You know, it's at the scene of the crime, but it's not the murder. Inflammation is at the root of heart disease, you know, not cholesterol. Yeah, there's a lot of people that would, would, would beg to differ with that, that particular statement, Mark. I, I agree with you. I think it's a complicated... It's a, uh, what uh, do they say? It's just, uh, uh, necessary, essential, but not... Not sufficient. Yeah, that's kind of the way to phrase it. I think that's a fair, fair assessment you know, from guys like Peter Atia that would, that, would, that would make that comment. But I, I do think it's a complicated... Uh, complicated. You know, we're, not, we're not one variable systems i mean you, yeah. you you know you you move one thing one way and six other things go another way and so you have to really like you said put in as many variables as you can figure yeah. out and i think that coronary artery calcium scan for people over either 40 45 is, is a pretty good tool um you know there is you know just a tremendous pushback against your your and mine and other people's uh sort of thought process to say it's not all about cholesterol and guys like Malcolm Kendrick, you know, where Wikipedia deletes his, I know, yeah, there's his entry because he's saying cholesterol is not the primary driver of heart disease, and now now he's being silenced. And so, it's interesting to see that sort of thing happening. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, industry's powerful. I mean, they own medical education, and if you're an outlier, you know, you're going to be suppressed. And people, you know, Sean, people have belief systems, which is not science, you know. So, 
belief systems are what you just, this is what you believe and, and that can't be budged. So people believe cholesterol causes heart disease, even though every paper out there shows it might be associated in certain people under certain conditions in these certain trials, but never to be replicated again. Heart disease is a process, you know, with many levers driving it. So to say it's caused by one thing, it's just absolutely not true. I mean, the literature doesn't support that. But, you know, I just keep fighting on it. You can't challenge people's belief systems. So I'll have cardiologists tell my patients, my diabetic patients, even the ones that are reducing their A1C and their HDLs are looking better, that, you know, that diet that, you know, Mark's putting you on is, is really dangerous for heart disease. They'll tell them that straight out to, to my patients. And I, I can't, I don't really care. How do you argue with that advice? I mean, and as professionals, to me, that's very demeaning to be able to so assuredly tell a patient that what someone else is doing is absolutely wrong, even if they're getting good results. Well, you feel great, you're exercising well, and getting your energy back, you've lost four inches off your waist, A1C is two times lower, but that saturated fat causes heart disease. I'm sorry. It makes no sense. You know, everything is going in the right direction, even including the things the cardiologists want to go in the right direction, right? A1Cs, HDL, triglycerides, the important ratios, you know, if you look at, you know, total cholesterol to HDL ratio, triglyceride to H, everything going in the right direction. But the saturated fat, you'll still hear that. Can't argue with it. Let them have their opinion. Have you, and I think this is what it's going to eventually have to take, you know, is, uh, you know, a, a longer term, you know, maybe a mid-length study of people pursuing a diet like this and, and actually demonstrating, you know, either improvements or failure to progress on things like a CAC scan or, you know, carotid, carotid duplex studies or something like that. Are you, have you ever seen anything like that where a patient came in with a study like that, particularly a carotid test, which seems to be more dynamic and have seen improvements? I haven't because, you know, I've just started, the, the calcium scores are pretty new. And uh, so I've only started using those pretty frequently since they opened up my outpatient clinic, which was a little less than two years ago. I wouldn't chase a, a coronary artery calcium for stability. Probably about two years is from what I've read. So, so I know like Dave Feldman is, because he's trying to just be more experimental. He's doing carotid intimal thicknesses almost every six months because he's doing direct changes in what he's eating and seeing, you know, this direct correlation. But for general population, what I'd like to see in some of my patients who have coronary plaque is at that two-year mark is decreasing a lot of this inflammatory stuff with a better diet. Is it stabilizing that plaque? I, I don't think you're going to see much regression. And there's actually some nuanced stuff too with the statins. So the statins actually will, people can start statins and, and it'll show even a little bit more plaque as that plaque stabilizes. So it's very hard to know. It's more of a marker as an initial assessment. You know, where do you stand? I, I don't think anyone know, yet knows, okay, how do you compare this test from two years later? Is that plaque stable or unstable? Because we know unstable plaque, bad. Stable plaque is what it is. You know, so uh, you know, maybe someone will come up with a, a better marker for that to tell what's unstable. So I don't, I don't know. It's, it's out there. You know, I'm not sure if you've seen any literature on following tax scores in people long term. Yeah, I, I well, I know what to your point about the unstable. So I know people will advocate something like a CT angiography, which is obviously an invasive yeah, procedure. Soft but, yeah, we certainly don't want to. Yeah, we don't want to be subjecting ourselves to that if unnecessarily for sure. But 
I have seen, you know, again, just anecdotal people saying that they've seen a reduction in, in coronary or artery calcium scan. Again, that's completely anecdotal. You know, it needs to be further investigated. But I mean, the potential sure. may be there. And I know that from an orthopedic standpoint, seeing, you know, ossification occur in other tissues over time, and it takes time, you know, there, and it may be just a diffusion gradient that, that can remodel and can go away. And so I would not be surprised. I think Ivor Cummings may have some more yeah, anecdotal. Yeah, yeah, so I, I think it's possible. But I mean, the, the, you know, like, what about like, Patients with symptoms, you know, you have people with, with, uh, you know, coronary angia and, and their, their chest pain. I've seen people that had that went on a low carb diet and that went away. Are you seeing any of that stuff? Oh yeah. You see exercise capacity go up, you know, so I think what's happening in those people is it's mitochondrial function. You know, when you're having angi angina, you're, you're asking for oxygen and it could be at the muscular level because you're needing to work so hard to walk up the stairs. The cardiac demand is so high. So when you become more fit, you know, your threshold to getting that angina. And for the audience, that's just where you're going to have some type of discomfort in the heart area, you know, heart etiology based on supply demand, meaning you've got some stiffness and narrowing. Now, it could be small vessel disease. We've looked at cardiac disease as big pipes. But if you have microvest, you know, small capillary vessel disease from stiffness from inflammation, you know, you go walk across the yard and all these vessels are stiff and they don't pump. You know, so there's more pumping going on in the heart than just the heart. You know, we have 60,000 miles of capillaries, which all have their microvascular, like these little mini pumps. And that's, that's actually a really fascinating thing is the microvascular pump function of the capillaries. Think about it simplistically. And you'd be like, no, that can't be that simple. Like we have a pump, like our heart, and it pumps. And we have 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Now it's going to deliver red blood cells, oxygen, and nutrients out to 60,000 mile network. And somehow all that's going to get back into the heart with one pump. I think there's more, there's more going on there to, to what's delivering oxygen to the tissues. But yeah, anything that's going to help your fitness, fat burning capacity, exercise capacity. So we know that exercise in itself, even if you do nothing to the diet, helps people's long-term cardiac, you know, death rates, you know, mortality and cardiac function, you know, whether it's for heart failure, for cardiac, you know, coronary disease, just because I think that what that does, you know, it's called neovascularization, you know, so if you have one area that's kind of blocked, the body's magic, it's going to develop these networks, you know, around that. We see that a lot with peripheral vascular disease, you know, the arteries of the legs. But yeah, it's all good, you know, stabilize the plaque you have as an individual, medically, through the diet, sleep stress and then just start walking and then you got to kind of stress the system a little bit and the body adapts you know we're a biological organism right you stress it a little bit like training then you make an adaptation stress it a little bit more make another adaptation but don't go over the edge right just like training you know zach knows this you know geez there is a breaking point you know, where if you know training equals stress plus rest if you don't recover from what you've done you'll be in the tank yeah, you want to kind of micro stress things so you get stronger over time as opposed yeah. to the macro cool. stress that leaves you bedridden for done. <laughs> <laughs> That's race day. And then you need deep recovery. Yeah. The hundred congrats to that effort, you know. You said thanks, the thanks. Hundred mile trail. I hope you didn't go out the next day and try to set another track. No. <laughs> you went laid low. <laughs> yeah, it took a couple easy days for sure. Heck yeah. Hey Mark, well I think 
we've been you've been gracious with your time and we're 90 minutes in and so that's that's yeah. great stuff a long, a long thinking, time here yeah i think people are going to love this hey can you tell us where people can find you are you speaking anywhere this year i know i'm going to make my way to a few low carb things maybe i'll run india and we can we can run a quarter mile lap or something together maybe i don't know I, i'm working on i do my kettlebells every day you know you nice. can me nice. heck yeah but no i'm i'm sharing this information at, at the uniformed academy of Family Medicine, Uniform Service Academy of Family Practitioners, which are all the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine docs in March. It's the same weekend as, as Low Carb Denver, so I'm bummed I won't be at Low Carb Denver, but I'm speaking to a lot of local places, running stores. I've got to look at my calendar. I, I don't think I'm at any of the low carb events. They're conflicting with other things. But I'm trying to talk. I've got a couple of major university conferences based on oral health that we're speaking. I'm trying to get into some of the conferences that aren't necessarily low carb you know that to try to bring this out um got a physical therapy conference we're speaking at i'm going to be speaking on nutrition at a large podiatry conference this fall american academy of podiatric sports medicine so working those angles and <laughs> trying to keep publishing you know so if you don't publish anything you're doing you know it just sits there you know on on blogs and things so you got to do that work but yeah, so I've got, I have a book. I shared a lot of what I wrote, you know, through my life and my story. It's called Run For Your Life. We have a website, runforyourlifebook.com. Um, if you go to drmarksdesk.com, it links to my running store, my blog, all of our foundation work. All the proceeds from the book will go to my nonprofit, which builds trails at schools. So we're trying to do all that local community stuff here and uh, teach that's what it is. Teach the military. Start in West. If we can do, if we can make change in West Virginia, there's hope because we're we're number fifty. We're at the bottom of the of the ranking. We're trying to move up. Yeah, yeah you've got think, a lot of irons in the fire over there. It seems like I'll have to. It's time to run. I need more time to run. I'll have to talk to the bosses at Ultra and see if they'll green light a trip out and we can do a big group run or something at Two Rivers okay. Trides. That may be fun. We can yeah, have a meeting of the local runners and the HPO podcast fans in your area. <laughs> yeah, one that vanished my last couple marathons, just that four ounce Ultra shoe. I love oh, it. Yeah. Like a little slipper. I'm looking forward to yeah, it. We have it, running camps for kids. You know, we're teaching all this fun stuff at the running camps. We have summer running camps. Mm -hmm. Ultra sponsors them. They donated good bunch of shoes last year that's good to hear and i know like the vanish is uh d this summer is getting uh its cousin to the trails uh the vanish xc which i, I actually use a prototype of that at um at tunnel hill so it's like just a shade over five ounces but with a kind of a rubber trail spike oh, outsole great. on it but yeah so it's a uh, it's cool to see those ones hitting the hitting the the models and within ultra two those real nimble low profile ones so uh Cool. But yeah, Mark, thanks a bunch for, ha for coming on and talking. You know. Both. I love your show. You guys are sharing <laughs> the knowledge. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll be so, critical. We'll love to, we're looking forward to getting this one up and uh, definitely send me any links if there's anything specific you want me to put on the show notes and we'll, we'll get those so the listeners can click through quickly. Cool. And maybe we'll come back sometime, talk a little more about the shoes and the running. Yeah, for sure. That'd be awesome. Okay. You guys thanks, have a Mark. Good Appreciate it. It's been wonderful. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. 
Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.